Yes. Yes, she was. She was here last week, too. I know. She is. You're right. Yes, I know that. And, of course, you know she lives across the street from me. So I get to see her. But, yes, Miss Lily is doing very well. Um, I think that it's just been really pretty amazing, actually, that she made such an amazing turnaround. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, Maybe she'll be back with us at some point, I'm hoping. All right, I'm going to take a little sip here real quick. Okay, so here's what we want to do this morning, what I would like to do. Um, If I had known ahead of time how helpful it was to me to go back and relook at the the Jewish uh, history of baptism, that culturally, what did they do prior to the New Testament? Um, We know it was in place, don't we, for sure. Why? Well, tell me why. John the Baptist, for one, there's an, there's an obvious one. And who else was baptized? Himself? Jesus. Jesus. So we know that Jewish baptism was in, the, in place. Uh, as I was reading through some of the resources, and I dug out several, um, I'll share with you. But uh, when I was digging through resources on this, um, I, I found that one of the writers mentioned the fact that, you know, had this been a new thing, then those... Uh, Pharisees and the Jewish rulers who came out to the desert when John was baptized and would have rebuked him. He actually would have probably been stoned to death for a, a serious breach of his uh, priesthood. So they never did confront him on the baptism part. So we know baptism was actually in place. The other thing we know it from is from, from ancient archaeological history. So this is something else that I took a moment to find in one of my resources. And I'm sure you know this, but uh, in Jerusalem, they're finding baptismal pools all the time in Jerusalem. This is a photo here on the front page of this one of another one that's recently been excavated uh, in Jerusalem of of a baptismal pool that was there in in their city and used. Um, So... I looked at everything here and I thought, after I revisited this and refreshed my mind completely on this, I thought, wow, if we had known this before we went into chapter 2, verse 38, where, where we danced around that verse and, and trying to figure out why he would say what he said, I think today's discussion, what I'm going to share with you on my rabbit trail research, I think it's going to be really helpful. And I am going to make myself a note the next time I teach this, it is going to be taught uh, in my lesson zero. And so that way we start out there and we will have that, this insight that we're going to gain this morning. And I think you'll see why it will be so valuable to us. Uh, another thing I thought was really cool was when uh, we had a, I had a class that I was in just recently where um, uh, there was some misunderstanding about some things that were said in the Gospel of John. As, as you move into that, if you back up to this point here, Jesus' baptism, and understand it better, then when you move into that next chapter in John 2, it totally makes sense. Everything in there, you look at you know, how he responds to his mother, uh, it, it, it perfectly makes sense once you see all this. So we're going to start here. First, let me tell you this. The first time I did my research on this was years ago. It must have been, honestly, 25 years ago, maybe. Uh, Jewish Jewels uh, is a ministry that you can Google on your webpage. I mean, just Google Jewish Jewels. And um, 
she is a woman that teaches about the Jewish culture and understanding of words and um, uh, customs and traditions. And she goes into the word meanings and what they do literally in it, right? So she was the one that I first became introduced to when I was living overseas in Turkey back in 1983 or 84, maybe somewhere in there. And... um, I sent off by mail for a cassette tape. Do you remember those? Cassette tapes. (laughs) And it was like a 30-minute thing, and it was called the mikvah. And um, so that was my first introduction. And honestly, I can tell you now, in the conclusion of my research this week on this, Everything I learned that first time through is found bits and pieces here and there throughout it. So I'm going to try to go back to Jewish Jewels and see if I can get that by DVD. And if I can, and then I can send it out. And, you know, I don't know how great um, uh, the quality, because it's probably going to be a really old... uh, videotaped or whatever, unless they've redone it. But, um, but still, I want to see if, if, if it's still available and go back and revisit that. Okay, so this one here is a website. It's called JesusMessiah.com. It's uh, by Pastor Reckhart's Jewish Jesus blog. But he goes through and, again, just approaches it from history and and uses the scriptures. So everything's very well documented, very well collaborated with the New Testament and, and scripture verses. He also goes back into the Old Testament and shows some things that are in there. And he ties in, of course, the purification washings and shows you about what is taught to us in Leviticus. And those of us who did Leviticus, remember those. We didn't research them or study them at all at that time, unfortunately. But, but uh, he covers that in there. This one is... Um, christianhistory.net, and this person, I'm going to read a little bit of this to you in a little bit uh, when we get there, but this one is another one, and I had never seen them before, but he hits on a really cool little segment here that I want to read to you that talk, that kind of takes you to that point of understanding that the baptisms are done in the name of uh, someone. Um, this was the first one I went to and loved this one. This is called Foundations Ministry. It's the Jewish background of Christian baptism. So it is a, you know, all these are Christian sites, but they take it from the Jewish perspective. What he does, what I love the best about him is, actually I think it's a her. Her name is Margie Hughes. And she goes in and talks about how uh, the roots of our Christian faith are obviously Jewish, Right? And so for a lot of historical insights, you you can go back to the Jewish writings and records. And so she went back to the, the Talmud. Where they in the Talmud there what I thought was cool is she says the Talmud is like their how to study book for 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 a Jew, if you're actually trying to practice Judaism. And in there are all the details for all the various kinds of washings, right? And, and baptisms that they do. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And so then she gives tons. Oh, you can see all the notes I, I took when I was going through hers. She just gives tons of information about um, 
baptisms and what they're for and when they're done and how they're done. More detail than you really probably want to know, some of you. But for me, it was really interesting. I just found it fascinating to go back in and restudy this. And this is a deeper level than the jewels for Jesus gives you. This is even more. The last thing that I did was, in order to keep a good balance in my research, is um, I went into the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and typed out, or I printed out, everything that they have on baptism from various cultures and perspectives. So here it starts with the meaning, then it says religious washings in Hellenism, uh, then it covers uh, it, uh, religious washings in the Old Testament, Judaism, it talks about the baptism of John, Christian baptism, and uh, what else was there in the baptism as a... I can't even say some some kind of a mystery, but I can't even pronounce that word, so it's beyond me. Um, But it's huge, and there's tons of it, and it's all directly from, of course, the Bible. So this holds you fast to the Bible. What I found interesting was when I was reading this, after I had done all of this other research from Talmuds and traditions that have been recorded through the Jewish systems, it lines up perfectly with this. (laughs) Should it? Yeah. yeah, it should. And if it doesn't, then you start questioning your resources. So what I'm going to say to you about your own personal rabbit trails, when you go off on a rabbit trail like, like I just did, that has not been provided for us through the curriculum, it's just important that you use discretion and, and a, and a uh, objective observation method of some kind as you're looking at these these websites and pages. It's very easy. Some people have very persuasive talk, if you know what I mean. You can go in and they can, they can convince you that the, that the moon is, you know, green or whatever, that it's cheese, you know. So it, you have to be careful to say, number one, again, don't violate your known doctrines. Remember, you know, to, to try to proof text everything through the scripture as much as you can. I would also take a moment, if you can, and some of them you can, some you can't, but Google on their homepage about, about us part of it and look to see what, are their, what is their background, who are they, is it what organization supports them or backs them, okay? Because that's also helpful to give you a, an assurance sometimes about who you're looking at. You don't want to get into some, something wacky. Okay, so that's my research part. Um, I can, um, I'm not going to send these out. I'm going to tell you this. This is how you can get these things because you can do this all yourself very easily if you want it. You're going to go on your uh, Google, whatever you call that bar on your computer. Their search bar. There you go. And you're going to just type this in, Jewish history of baptism. And it's going to pop up all kinds of things that you can go in. And what's cool about that is you will find your own stuff. It may not be exactly the same as where I ended up, but it'll be similar. You can look for some of these that I mentioned to you, like this Foundations Ministries. I would definitely recommend that one. It was really cool the way she did it because she actually pulls in using the Talmud, but then she pulls in biblical scripture throughout the whole thing. It's very detailed. It's it's one of the longer ones of my thing, and it's much more detailed. So do that on your own. but it's from these resources that I pulled my information and that I'm going to share with you this morning. Um, let me just 
give you a little bit, let me just read a little bit of some of this so that you get an idea, a feel for this. Um, She says, all of us are aware of the concept of baptism, even though we might not agree about all the different levels of importance it holds for the believer. We're also aware of the disagreements concerning just what baptism is or where it came from. Did John invent it, the idea of baptism? And we've already discussed this. We know the answer is no. It was obviously already in place because he did not get a rebuke at all from those uh, spiritual leaders who came to him. Um, is baptism necessary for salvation? Is in, yeah, no. <laughs> is there one baptism or more than one? Well, the answer as you move through this that you're going to come to see is there's various kinds of baptism, not more than one. When it comes to Christian faith, there's one baptism through the Spirit, right? And that's what is taught to us in Scripture. And she's going to cover that, and she validates that for us and confirms it. So I was really pleased with what I saw her, how I saw her handle it. I liked it. What does it mean to be baptized into the name of Yeshua, Jesus? So that's part of our Acts study, and this article I think would be very helpful to you to gain some insights there or into his death. What does that mean? Those are just a few of the many questions concerning the subjects. And while I'm fairly confident that this study will not answer every question or settle every debate we might have, I do hope that the information presented will help us at least answer some of them. Um, this study isn't meant to be exhaustive in the sense that we cover every possible connection to the subject under the discussion, but rather to serve as a springboard for you for your own continued study. Um, and she starts here, and I'm going to give it to you because I thought this was really a cool one. We've done Hebrews before in this group, so you're going to find this is a familiar verse. The Bible has much to say about immersion or the doctrine of washing baptisms, but it is still one of the most misunderstood teachings in Scripture. This doesn't appear to have been a problem for the first century believers, however. And then she says, we read in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, this. Therefore, leave the elementary teachings about Messiah. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. Did you catch the plural on that? baptisms, and the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Here Paul tells us that the elementary teachings of the Messiah are, and she, she restates them. And then she says regarding, so, so a couple things in particular stand out in this passage. First, the fact that these are elementary teachings. In other words, something that was or should be understood by the, even the newest of those early Jewish believers in the days when Hebrews was written, Right? These are elementary. Guys, I'm not even going to explain it because you already know it. I'm going, oh, thanks. Forgot about us <laughs> Gentiles 2,000 years later, right? <laughs> I wish she'd have gone back and explained them. But, of course, could you imagine how big that book would be? And Hebrews is huge already. So, anyway, he says, and then secondly, the word baptisms is plural. Regarding the first point, then she goes to the first point. Then she goes to the second point. Uh, it needs a little more explanation. Much of what we know about the first uh, century Jewish life is about is found in the Talmud, a collection of ancient rabbinical writings to the Jewish mind. There are two basic parts of Torah or law. One is the written law, and the other is the oral. The second part is what is uh, the wait a second. According to the Jewish thought, this was handed down orally from generation to generation for about fifteen hundred years, and then the oral Torah was put into a written 
uh, book called the Mishnah. Um, the Talmud was former, uh, formed after discussion and commentary was added. We might call it a how-to book. That's the part I was telling you about earlier. For it will be found, uh, in it you will find the detailed instructions on how to carry out all worship, festivals, sacrifices, commandments, and including ritual purification. So now I am actually interested in getting an English Talmud. Don't, wouldn't this be interesting to have to because our roots are found in Judaism. And although we don't adhere to those ritualistic laws any longer, to go back and look at them and understand them so that in light of when we go into the Bible and we're doing our homework, either Old or New Testament, we have better understanding of these people and what they were doing and why they were doing it. I just think that would be very fun. So I'm thinking I'm going to get myself a Talmud if I can in English. I'm not sure how to go about that, but I guess I'll figure that out later. I'm not going to learn Hebrew. Not going to do it. <laughs> I haven't even learned Greek yet. I haven't even learned English for that one. I barely struggle through this. Okay. Second, the scripture speaks of numerous things that make a person toma, T-O-M-E-H. There's a Hebrew word for you. Ritually unclean and a number of processes of purification. The one act required in all purification processes was immersion or mikvah. Now, I've heard of the mikvah. That's a word I've been familiar with, and most of you probably have been. The word mikvah means collection or gathering and speaks of a place where the waters of immersion are gathered. One thing I didn't know, I wonder, oh, she says it here, I'll tell you. Over, uh, over the years, the word mikvah has come to be used to refer to the actual act of immersion itself, to mikvah someone okay the early uh the earliest biblical usage this is cool the earliest biblical usage of the specific word mikvah is found in genesis 1 9 where god called the collection of the waters during the uh creation week one of the other ones says for this reason they still consider the ocean a, a, a considered a, a, a sanctified place for baptisms isn't that cool? I didn't know that. But that's why they can go out to the ocean and be baptized, and it's, there, it's uh, considered uh, what is it, kosher or whatever the word is. Okay, so. Um, and then he uses it also in 1 Kings, and he, and he goes into Second Chronicles as a reference. But most of all is in Leviticus. A lot of it is in Leviticus. But certainly in 15 is an, an important chapter containing detailed instructions about rich, ritual immersions. There are three words that are used for ritual washing, and then he, she gives all three of these. One is simply to wash or bathe, as in for a person. One is to uh, wash or rinse, um, like for the rinsing of hands, right? They would often wash their hands and their feet. This, that's this word, uh, not the whole body, right? And then the last one is the one that has to do with washing things out, like clothing and so forth, all right? So there's three kinds of words for this, this idea of washings, all right? And there are also three types of uh, ritual washings. So it's not just three, three words for it, but now there's three different times. One is complete, complete immersion, the other is the washing of hands and feet, and the other is the washing of just hands. And so there are three different ways of doing that. And in the Torah, it will tell you which one is required for which situation. All the laws and rules for who does what, when is given there. 
So, returning to the second point of special notice in the Hebrew 6 passage, we see the reason for the plurality of the word baptisms in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. I thought, that explains it. I've always wondered about that. Have you, did anybody else ever wonder about that particular verse, that the, the idea of the, the, of the baptisms being plural? I thought that was cool, though. So that explains it. Um, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a ceremonial washing. I would not. I don't think a baptism. Not in the perspective that you and I would think a baptism. For we're going to get there in a minute. There are different purposes for baptisms, and then there's also purification washings. And um, I think in his he, his moment in that moment he was teaching servitude. The attitude of that, that to be my disciple and to follow me, you're to serve me. So you're to, he demonstrated washing of feet. That one was not a ceremonial washing, I don't believe. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, when they traveled, they were in sandals. And right. So it was just a common event. Anointing is what they called that one. Yeah, just know that sometimes people get wet, and it's just a bath. <laughs> but there are time, But when we're talking about this kind of uh, mikvah, it's for. As a matter of fact, one of these articles it says on there because it's not intention for external cleanliness. That's not its point. The mikvah is not for that. They actually go through a process of washing and bathing before they go for their baptisms. They wash their hair. They wash their bodies. They're, they're totally clean. And when they come to the, the, the mikvah, they're, they've already been fully washed. Then they go into the, to the immersion. Yeah. Hey, Patty, this makes me think of Peter's request. Well, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. Yeah. Yes. Um, and Jesus said, no, you don't need all that. Right. I don't know. That one's a good question, Susan. It would be fun to, when we're studying that, section to take all this information and try to make some applications when now that I've kind of got this in my thought I uh, it's like a new thing on my plate for me to work with it's it's going to be fun to see how much more insight how much better we're going to be able to understand I think that for sure once I share with you some of these bullet points it's going to be helpful to us even as we're going through the book of Acts and I wish we'd have done it at the beginning of Acts instead of now. I just didn't know and you know, I've never taught Acts. Obviously, it's never been out before. So, yeah, there you go. All right. Now, um, this was cool, though. Here's another, another thing that, that lines up perfectly with what we've already looked at. One of the points she says in here. Now, let's see if we can figure out where we get the connection between mikvah and baptism. The Hebrew word for immersion is tevelah, and it literally means to totally immerse. It is used specifically to refer to immersion in a mikvah. The closest word in Greek for tevela is baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-D-Z-O. Okay, so it's slightly different spelling, but it's the act of being immersed. Okay, and so here's cool. This is cool though, because listen to the definition of of this word baptizo. It is derived from an industry 
of dyeing cloth in Lebanon. It carries the connotation of something being immersed into a liquid so that the thing immersed takes on the characteristics of that which is immersed into it, such as cloth into dye or leather into tanning solution. So baptizo is where we get our word baptism. And when we looked it up earlier, remember we talked about baptism and there was a couple of different ways of of looking at baptism can mean just to get wet or it can mean to get what? Pickled, right? In her definition, which one is she looking at? Pickled. It's the same thing. It's a piece of cloth put into a dye solution. It comes out totally transformed, having taken on the characteristics and qualities of that which, in which it was di- uh, dipped into. So really the imagery of baptism that God has given to us so that we understand our relationship with God and, that, and what a refreshing way to think of our relationship with God right now in each one of us having been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You have been totally immersed in Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have been dyed. What color are you? Right? Are you red from the blood? Are you, are you, you know, purple because you're royalty now? Are you whatever? The, I just white? think, I, are you white because you're clean, right? So you've been dipped into this dye and you've totally taken on the qualities and the characteristics of that into which you have been dipped. <laughs> and therefore, then you go back, to, that takes me in my mind to the subject then of covenant, where what happens then with two things when they are dipped? When one is dipped into the other, they be, two become one. So again, it just reaffirms that that particular insight about uh, covenant understanding that two become one through this word even of this old, this is the one that the Hebrews were using. So I think that's really cool. Okay, so I'm going to stop reading because there's ton, there are so many things. Oh, this one was really good about the straight out of the water. When Jesus was baptized, and came straight up out of the water. The mikvah is not for the purpose of physical cleaning. Okay, here it is. So the candidates for immersion would make special preparations by bathing, washing hair, cleaning fingernails, etc. And they would make a confession of faith before the witnesses. And then they would totally be immersed themselves by placing themselves in a sitting or a fetal position under the water with a witness or a baptizer doing the officiating. They don't touch the person they're being baptized, so they observe. Okay, they would then stretch themselves back into a standing position, uh, reciting another blessing as they came up from the water. So the New Testament illustrates this point when it says that Jesus came straight up out of the water. That's in Matthew three sixteen. If you want to read it, I went and looked it up because I thought I got to see that. I don't remember that. Sure enough, when Jesus comes, it says and he came straight up. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> anyway, so another insight. All right, now. Let's, let me just take you through and give you my insights. Is, everything, is everyone okay with me just telling, sharing with you what I, what I gleaned out of my papers? Yeah. Again? Okay, we'll pray again. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this, this opportunity to be sharing your word and for studying this amazing truth that you gave us about um, baptism through these papers that I was able to research and 
Um, Father, knowing that these are your ancient traditions, they're not traditions of men. These are things that you gave to your people to do. These are illustrations, Father, that you gave to us so that we might by them come to see and understand better, deeper truth that is spiritual from you. Father, this is only revealed to us by the power of your spirit. And so we ask, Father, right now that your spirit would open our eyes of understanding, that, Father, we would receive from you those things which are essential, those things which are good, those things which are pleasing, those things which line up with your word. Father, help us, Father, to be faithful stewards of your words, that we retain the standard of sound doctrine, and, Father, that we grow in the knowledge of you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jewish history of baptism. Um, let's start with the first one. Some reasons for baptism, okay? This is, this is from my, I'm going to put it up here. Foundations. No, I'm not, because that one doesn't work. There it is. Foundations ministry. Um, and you can do that as .org, obviously. Okay, so this is where I'm getting my, my insights from, right there. All right. Reason, some, these, I'm just putting some reasons because it's not all of them. All right. The first one is an obvious one. When we did Leviticus, what kind of baptisms or washings did we see in there? What were they doing them for? Do you remember? Yeah. Basically, it had, the, it had to do with the process of, beca- of going from being unclean to clean, right? We all remember that one. So that was a, the first one. Um, I'm going to put on here, this is called a status change. From, uh, I should do it the other way around, unclean. From unclean to clean. And you can go and look in Leviticus on this. Basically, I'm going to give you 12 to 14. It's in more places than just that. But there's a good hunk of insight in Leviticus 12 to 14 on that. One of them that, what, that really... Um, finally got answered to me was in that Leviticus 12. Do you remember the woman who's had to have ceremonial cleansing after the birth of a child? And we finally figured out that uh, throughout the book of Leviticus, we, we learned that for the Jewish people, God had consecrated blood for the altar of sacrifice only. They were not allowed to use it, drink it, eat it, cook with it, whatever, even spill it without a process to then somehow cover it up or make atonement for it because blood was reserved for the altar only, for the atonement only. It was to be a picture of the uh, forgiveness of sins that God would provide for his people. And so he wanted them to reserve it as a holy article, basically. So anytime blood was shed for anything, they would use dirt and cover it up, for instance. Or in this case, it was a purification law that was put in place for women after they had a child and for other things that you can go on and think about. <laughs> but for unclean to clean, anytime they came into contact with blood or a dead person or any of the unclean things of their world around them, then they had to go through this purification. 
But it literally becomes then a status change from being, they were unclean and now they become clean. <coughs> so it was preparation for worship, right? They would do that. They would do it, uh, or maybe they would be in a process of going in to serve God like the priests for service. Those would be some things that they would want to do. Okay, now a, also a new position in life. <coughs> my, my throat is dry for some reason. So here is the second one. The second one is it's a, it can also be, as far as status change, a new position in life from one phase of life into another. Here were some of the things that I gleaned out of my reading. Things like becoming a king. So if, you're, if someone had been anointed by the priest and then he was going to become a king, then there would be also a baptism that might take place for him. Uh, entering the priesthood, that would be another time when baptisms would take place. Moving into leadership or becoming a teacher or a rabbi, that would be another thing because it's actually a status change. It would be like, for instance, if I, if we were still practicing this he, here in Christianity today, then whenever we have a person who becomes a teacher for our classes, they would go through public baptism because now the congregation is to view that person in a new status form. They're not just a member uh, exclusively, but they also now have been given that honor or position by identity change into the leadership roles, whatever they might be. Um, okay, we're, we're getting there. That's another one. Um, but so this new position or new phase in life, I thought about this, about entering into the priesthood. Uh, when Jesus was baptized, what was he becoming for us at that point? Our great high priest. He was entering into that new identity. That was one of the reasons. It was a status change for, for him in that. Also, in a status change is just as Margaret just brought up, a new identity. It's a little bit different from the other one, but similar, okay? Um, and in this one, it has to do with be entering into motherhood entering into marriage, maybe an adoption possibly, like a child that's adopted, then there can be a baptism of that so that they come into a new identity, okay? So that was something that they used that for in their, according to the Talmud. Uh, Another one would be for a physical witness to a spiritual truth. Now, I would say this one is the one that we associate with most closely when we look at identity change because with us, as we enter into faith in Jesus Christ, we go from being an unbeliever to being a believer. It's a status change. We have changed. It actually goes back to uh, Romans where it talks about you're no longer in Adam, but now you're where? In Christ. It's a new identity. It's a new umbrella over you. So it's a status change. In this one, in the Old Testament with the Jews, what would it have been? It would be things like a proselyte coming into Judaism. They would be baptized because they're taking on a new idea. They were Gentile. Now they're associated with the Jewish. They, they take on the, um, the blessings, basically, of all the, the Jewishness of their new identity. New identity and also physical. 
a physical witness to a spiritual truth. All right, so that's, that was that one. Then I'm going to go, the status change is one thing, but then I want to look at Jesus' baptism more carefully. Because I think this one is the one that you and I will use a lot for a lot of other areas, maybe not as much right here in the Acts study, but I want you to see it. Um, what was Jesus' identity when he came to us as a baby in the manger. Give me some of the identities of him that you are familiar with. Okay, he was born Emmanuel. Um, that is given to us, but does he have that identity in the world at that time? Not yet. Okay, so there you go. The son of Mary and Joseph, right? Or also the son of man, because it simply was... A common, you know, the, the son of a, of a carpenter, right? So that was his, his first identity. So think about that. So his, his identity previously, he was son of Joseph. I don't know how to spell Joseph. Joseph, there it is. I got it. <laughs> Joseph and Mary. My, my spelling here. Okay, so previously son of Joseph and Mary. And I'm going to give you some verses. I looked them up. Since I did, I'll go ahead and give them to you. Uh, John 1, 51. It's just a couple. I just wanted to see some. 2, uh, 34, and three twenty-three. You can go look at all of those to give you... One's in Luke, or two of them are in Luke, one in John. Now, his new identity, let me show you this, new identity. And his new identity is, if you run in, if you go into Matthew and John alone, even, you can get almost all of this out of just those two sections. His new identity, when he was baptized and he came up out of the water, the dove had descended and then what happens? The G- God himself speaks out of the heavens, and he says, This is my son in whom I am now pleased. New identity. Do you see it? Isn't that cool? I had never really looked at it quite that clearly. New identity. Uh, I'm going to put, uh, This is my son, and that means God's son. Uh, and that, so that's Matthew 3.17 and uh, John one thirty four. So you can have those just to go back and look at, make a note in your page. When he makes that declaration, this is an, an identity change that has happened and it's at the moment of his baptism. So that, then that gives you deeper insight into what you're looking at when you're looking at those particular passages. He's also called, another thing in John, he is called the Lamb of God at that time, Right? The Lamb of God. That's in 136. Um, his, the second thing, so we've, we've looked at... Uh, yes, John. 136, yes. The, the second thing you're going to sh- see is, so he gets a new position and he gets a new identity. Here, his new, posi- his new identity... 
that he has as a result of having been baptized directly following his baptism, then you see a whole chapter in um, John that's just a rendition of all the new identities, names that he has. And it's one after another after another. If you go into that chapter and just in uh, John chapter 1 and even into 2, but at chapter 1, if you go into John and just put a box around all the new titles that he presents about himself that directly follows the statement that he was baptized. He was baptized, he comes up, he says, this is my son, and then he goes on, he says, now he's the king of the Jews, he's this, he's this. It's really, really cool. So he becomes in his new identity or his new position. I'm going to put new position in life because I like that better. His new position It does not negate the fact that he, he's the son of Joseph and Mary, but now he is in a public ministry of a new identity and a new position, a new role, right? And in that, he is now the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, right? That's in John one forty one. And he's the king of Israel. That's in John one forty nine. This here, okay. Okay, so that kind of gives you just a touch. I barely went through this. I mean, I'm telling you, there's way, way more than this, but I don't, because you didn't do the study, I did. I'm just spoon-feeding this to you, but it's whetting your appetite for you to go in and actually start looking at this a little more deeply. You can see what a huge research this could be. It could take on a life of its own. Um, so you got an extra week this week. Maybe you want to spend a little bit of time one day just doing some research on bap- baptism through this. Um, yes? Okay. Yes. He's doing two things in the in the book of Matthew. Did you do Matthew with us? I can't remember. When we did Matthew, one of the things we okay, I can't remember either. Uh, but Matthew, the the primary theme in that book was that he he was the king of the Jews. He came to be the king, right? There are two things that baptism does. The first thing was, remember earlier I said to you that one of the things they do when they enter into a new position of, of life, if they're going to become the king, what are they? What happens? They're baptized. There's an anointing by the Spirit. That one, when we did Matthew, we actually went in and we looked back at, at David and other places where when the kings became kings of Israel, there was a presence of the Holy Spirit upon them. And without that, there, that anointing, then they weren't declared officially king, right? So two things happened, or three things, quite, quite honestly, happened in that baptism. And this is where, Heinz, you almost have to pull in like information from two or three things and pull it all together and then lay it into that storyline. This is where inductive Bible study becomes, I think, so intriguing and so fun because, yes, you're in there, you're looking at Matthew, you're going, this is what happened. You can look at it very clinically. You can say, okay, he fulfilled that. He was going to become the king. He had a baptism. You just move right on. The thing is, if you understand what the baptism was in the Jewish history, that one of the things they did was 
baptize their kings and their king had to be anointed by the spirit. Both of those things took place at his baptism. The spirit fell and then God makes this declaration. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed about him. No. And that's the reason I guess I'm struggling with maybe too much of an engineering approach. Yeah. Is Jesus is Jesus. Yes. A public, it's a public identity, though, Heinz. He went from being, in the common people in his world, he went from being just the son of Joseph and Mary, a carpenter's son, right? And and do you remember how often in his early ministry they go, well, isn't that just Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, right? And they would make these objections. But now, at the moment of that baptism forward, he has come, he is now 30 years of age. He qualifies for priesthood. So that's another reason he would have been baptized, because he came to also be our priest, our great high priest. So the priest is handled, the king is handled, the, um, the new, the new uh, position of being the Messiah, that he came to die for us and <coughs> to be the Savior, all those things are fulfilled through one thing, baptism. And when he goes through baptism, it's an identity change. It's a role change. And a, uh, yes, uh, public identity as far as what the comet people around him knew that was changed. And that's where, when you go into John chapter 2, and you enter that verse there where it says, and he speaks to his mom who says, please uh, take care of the water and wine issue. Remember, we had this come up just recently. Well, if you remember, Jesus had just been baptized. That's just what preceded that. Then there's this rendition of all these new titles that he's now going to be known by because he's taking on this new public identity. And then the next thing he says, and when when his mom says, you know, we have a problem here, they run out of uh, wine, and he says to her, woman, and then what is, what are uh, some of that, what is these, what are these... The, my name is not kind, but also my, the, what do these matters have to do with me, basically, right? What he was saying was, remember, Mom, I just took on a new identity, a new role. I'm no longer your son. I'm not the son of Joseph and Mary anymore, although I am their, I am his, their son. But I am now in a new role in this new position. I am now to be the Messiah. I am now the Christ, and I am now publicly being known in that way. So he was gently reminding her of his new position. And then he proceeded to go ahead and do what his mom asked him to. Right. right? And performed his first miracle and worked it in there so that it all worked out perfectly. But, but it's interesting because we kind of struggled over that statement to her why he refers to her as, well, woman. But it's because he was reminding her he had just been Baptist. And if you look at the flow of the thought in there, it, it's a boom, 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 boom right into there got baptized, these are his new titles, woman. And it's, he's reminding her, I'm not your son, I'm not here on the earth right now to be your son. I'm now in the position of being Messiah. So. Well, I just go back to it. The whole witness to a spiritual truth, mm-hmm. which to Heinz, yes, he was all that before, but this is his proclamation. It's a proclamation. It's a public proclamation. Proclamation. He wasn't known by to the common world around him as any of these new identities until he began his public ministry. When then he started be saying, "I am He." Right. So it, it, that's all it is. It was a it's a public proclamation through a a ceremony of baptism to tell the world to declare to the world 
he has a new position and a new identity now to be known by, and therefore it elevates him in this, actually. It's an elevation of sorts, usually. Um, Obviously, his baptism was not for the remission of sin, right? It was for these other reasons. And that's why so many young believers read that Jesus got baptized and they struggle with that. Well, why, did, why does he have to have forgiveness of sin? Well, that's not why he did it. If you understand the Jewish history of baptism, there are other reasons baptisms were done. And he went to John to, do, to, to fulfill all righteousness that he was going to do what was, according to the law, this new identity thing, this new marker of, of that, and also God himself, the heavens opened, God anointed him with the spirit in that moment for the gospel of, of Matthew, <clears throat> that was his anointing as king. <clears throat> okay, uh, someone else? In new, in, in, yeah, in a way. And he was also giving him. I think it's interesting that if you look at it from this perspective of understand it, standing that in Jewish history, baptism is a way for them to make a public proclamation of a, of a move, of a positional move, sort of, or a new identity known to the public of them, um, is the fact that God was so, in fact, he says, this is my son. Okay? It wasn't just... Let me let you all know this is my son. It was, no, this is my son. It was almost taking him back in a way. It was, it was a statement of he is my son. Yes, Joseph and Mary nurtured him. Mary gave birth to him. Yes, he is son of man. He will always be son of man. He doesn't lose any of that. But now, starting at the beginning of his public ministry, he is entering into this new identity role, and he's proclaiming himself to be who he came to be. So that was the purpose. And what's really cool is when you go back to the, the Talmud and you understand the Jewish history behind their baptism ceremonies and why, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says they were... Our, these are elementary teachings of their, of their faith. And there were many kinds of baptisms that were done. And then when, so then when you get into the New Testament and look at John baptizing, you now understand better why the Jews did not rebuttal on him concerning him giving a baptism. It was a common thing for them to do. And they did the, And when you look at the archaeological resources, you're going to find there's baptismal pools that have been dug up everywhere, all over the place, especially in Jerusalem. Yeah. So that was, I thought that was very insightful. It helped me. Now, one of the last things I want to read to you is, hold on, let's see, I have a, where's my stack here? Out of one of these papers, I wanted to share with you one thing that this person here said. Um, this one is Christian, from ChristianityToday.com. And what they did is they went back to also another resource, not the Talmud, but this one is the Qumran, uh, writings of the Qumran uh, sectarians, basic, uh, kind of that same area where the Essenes were and all that. But they were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? They also found among the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, a, a manual of discipline or the community rule is what it was called. Interesting? And so in there, they would, there would be teachings about that if you're going to be a part of our sect, our group, our denomination, you are going to follow these kinds of 
procedures. And so this is one of the things that they did. He, it says, let me read here, while Christians may relate to baptism as a sign of covenant and purity before God, they still don't bridge the gap to John the Baptist's baptism of repentance or the messianic thrust of his message. While there's still room for speculation, one possible bridge is the community at Qumran, the sect, uh, desert sect best known for creating the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like Orthodox Jews, the Qumran sectarians baptized for reasons of ritual purity. But their manual or of discipline or the community rule, as stated, also stated that a person could not become clean if he failed to obey God's commands. Four, this is a quote, it is through the spirit of God's true counsel concerning the ways of man that all his sins be expiated, observes the manual. And when his flesh is sprinkled with purifying water, it shall be made clean by, this is how, not because of the water, but by the humble submission of his soul to all the precepts of God. So baptism, if it's done just purely to get wet and you have other motives in your heart when you do that, of what value is it really, right? But he's saying those who go through, who actually uh, are willing to be obedient to God, this is showing the submission of their soul to God's commandments. And I thought that is a beautiful lineup really of the idea of being baptized in the name of Jesus too, that we are one in community. What does Jesus say about those who love him? They obey him, right? In, in the gospel of John, it says, if you love me, you will obey me. So, um, the horse before the cart, submit and then obey. I, I put, gave myself a note, the horse before the cart. Don't ever, don't ever think that you get wet and and that gives you obedience. It, you have to have a willingness of the heart to be obedient and then be baptized, right? So that took me back then to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where he says, be baptized and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. Does that kind of, I think that helps better explain it, actually. It's the idea, if their Jewish understanding is, it's the idea that you're going to take on a new identity and you need to proclaim that, Right? It needs to also be a part, of, for us, it's the idea of going from clean, unclean to clean, also symbolically, right? But it's taking on, the, the, like the dye ta- is taken on into the cloth that's dipped in, or the pickle, the cucumber that becomes a pickle when it's dipped, that taking on of a new identity. All those things are true, but it also, me- it, um, now where was I going with this? But the idea that the submission of his soul is the essential quality that must precursor all of it. Are you willing? And I think that's what Acts 2.38 was actually saying. Are you willing to do this, to submit, and to understand that it's a submission to God in all his commandments, all that he teaches. In that chapter, I remember that was one of the things that was brought up in there was the idea that there was uh, the following of God's commandments and being, is that correct? Am I getting that one right or is it in a different one? But anyway, where he says that you must be, if you are going to remain in me, then you must follow me. You must obey my commandments, right? Otherwise, and in 1 Corinthians, the verse we looked at last week, otherwise, it's a faith that's been in vain. You've, if you've believed in vain and you're not obeying, then you just got wet. 
But if you truly believed with this kind of heart, uh, the submission of your soul to all the precepts of God, understanding that this is what you're doing in the doing of this baptism, then you willingly go there, you make a public statement of this, and you do receive the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of cool. Okay, that has a different purpose in it, Margaret. Tell, somebody under, does anybody else understand the reasons why we're seeing some marker points with Peter when Peter comes down and lays on hands? I understand, I understand that, but from listening to what you're saying, it seems like you don't receive the Holy Spirit. No, you're, you're confusing two subjects, though. One subject in the, in the book of Acts, the flow of the book of Acts, we're seeing how the church is birthed. And there are marker points, as according to Acts 1.8, where certain uh, uh, localities are receiving it. First it's in Jerusalem, then it goes to Judea and Samaria, which is where that one is. And, and when that occurs... Although Philip had done all that he knew according to the old law, the, the Spirit had not yet fallen on them because there needed to be a public proclamation through the one with the authority. I understand, I understand that. So, okay. I mean, that I just, so you were, I mean, are you saying then that the, anybody who does not get baptized can have the No, no, I'm not saying that at all. Okay. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not saying that if you're not baptized, you're not saved because you are saved. Actually, I think about uh, um, a lot of scenarios in life where people can't be. Yes. Thank you, Margaret. No, that's a good one to make, make clear. All I'm giving you is history for their use of it and the practice of it and the purpose of it. Why did they, what were some reasons for having baptism, you know, had to do with, could be marriage, it could be a new role in life, it could be a new name, it could be for going from unclean to clean, it could be a lot of things. So there's different kinds of baptisms that they did. And um, what we see it, through demonstration with Jesus is a couple of them. The identity change and the new position that he was going to hold in, in community life. And so he was entering into this new ministry, taking on this priesthood as the rabbi, the teacher. But most specifically, I am the son of God now. I'm not the son of Joseph and Mary specifically to the world. I've come to be the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in that new identity marker, he had this process of baptism actually fulfilled several of the things. And I thought it was interesting. It makes better sense to me now when he says to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. And if their system of righteousness was this, which God gave to them, right? Then he did that. He had this baptism, obviously not for the remission of sins, but to make this public declaration that he had now, he was now here to be son of God, uh, the king of the Jews, uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the savior, uh, all these things that, that are listed. Okay. All right. So that gives you a little bit of background on that. And I think, I don't know, do you tell me, do you think that those insights are helpful for the book of Acts? If I teach this again, do you think that's something I should include at the beginning of this instead of, like, now, halfway through? Do you think it would be easier to... Well, it ties it all together. It, I think it, it, the insights are helpful. It's helpful to Acts, and it's also helpful to some of the Gospels. Oh, it's very helpful. It's actually helpful for everywhere. Even in the Old Testament, when you go back in there and you see them being... getting washed either hands or feet or anything, now you go, oh, is that a baptism or is that just getting washed? Is he just taking a bath? 
or is it a ceremonial thing, right? Yeah, I think it's really good. Okay, great. Well, I hope that was insightful. Okay, so now we're ready to move into this week's work. Um, with that, keep your list on this available. Take your time this week, if you have some, to go back and do your own research on this subject. I think that, that you'll, it'll benefit you even greater if you've done your own research um, rather than just relying on me you know, to have given you... Things. It's, it's, you always learn things better if you study it yourself, okay? Okay, right. Oh, good, James. Awesome. Well, you know, um, I, uh, quite honestly, the answer would be no. Yeah. <laughs> the answer would be no. There's not anything in here. Okay, so let's look at, pa- at Paul in Acts chapter 9 and also the church, the, the process that we're seeing about the birthing of, our, of the church here. What we're going to do is we're going to handle this through paragraph themes, Okay. Oh, you didn't do your paragraph themes? Oops. You're in trouble. <laughs> Busted again. <laughs> okay. First of all, tell me what you see going on in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. So that's going to be your first paragraph, verses 1 to 9. What has happened there? Paul's conversion is, is exactly right. We don't see the word conversion, but that's where I keep ending up with anyway, because that's the best description of it. But in fact, what we do see is Paul, what, is, what happens with Paul when he, on, on that road to Damascus? He sees Jesus. So Paul sees Jesus. And... Well, in this part of it, you're right, but then later it explains to us that he actually sees him and speaks with him, right? Yeah, he talks to him and he, see, he speaks with him. He says that in the other, in other verses. Um, so we see that he sees the Lord and he speaks with the Lord. The Lord instructs him, right, um, on the road to Damascus. And what, did, what is the question that Jesus asks of him why are you persecuting me? Now this, for most of us, is going to be a pretty simple understanding. But we did on day two, page 104 on your homework, if you want to flip there, we did a bunch of cross-references to go to look at why does Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? So let's, let's just note some of those points about what is, it, what is he talking about there? Why are you persecuting me. Right? That's Jesus. Jesus gets pink today because I don't have a red. That's okay. All right. So why are you persecuting me? Uh, What did it say in John 14, 16 to 20? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what we saw in, in that particular reference in John... 14 is that Jesus had promised that the Spirit would come and would be in them, right? And he called it a helper in that verse. Who would be in them? Who would abide in them? I love that word, abide. And 
there's another quality to this, I think, that's really cool. In that same verse, it talks about the, the Trinity again, which I love that. Did you see that? What did it show to us in that verse there about if, if the helper is in us, what else? Yeah, well, I just know that Jesus goes on to explain what it means. The helper is going to abide in you, and then he begins to explain that. And he says, what, how, what is, it's going to be the spirit of truth, and? Right, and go to the very last verse, I think it is. Yeah, do you catch it? So from that day forward, so when he gives him this information with the helper that's going to come, and he says, and when the helper is in you, then I am in you, and I am in the Father, and, and basically then we are in you. That this, this is a great picture of the triune God dwelling within us. We always think about the Holy Spirit abiding within us, but in this verse it shows us that when the Holy Spirit abides in us, God in his totality dwells within us. So abide in them. I'm just going to put it on here this way, the Trinity in us. Okay? So because uh, we were promised the helper, which we saw fall in Acts chapter 2, that it is now abiding in us as believers, what he's saying is then when he sees Paul on the road to Damascus and Jesus says to him about those that Paul had been persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? Why did he say that? Because what? It, because Jesus is in every one of those whom Paul was persecuting, which I was really cool. So then in Matthew 25, it actually makes sure that you catch that picture. He says in Matthew 25, what? About the things that we do to the brethren. Yeah, what you do to my brothers. You do to me. All right. Wow. Because I abide in them, what you do to my brothers, you do to me. And I love it, too, that when you go on to Luke 10, we also looked at that one. And what did he tell us there about when we're out in the world witnessing and we're giving word of truth. As long as you're, if you are wit, truly witnessing and giving the word of truth and you are speaking to somebody about the gospel message of their need for a savior and they reject you, what? They're actually rejecting Jesus himself, literally face to face. I mean, it's one of those, it's a spiritual, it's on a spiritual plane, but it is their spirit resisting the spirit of God himself. So in Luke 10... He says, if uh, one rejects you, he rejects me. That's pretty scary in a way. That gives the perfect picture, though, of that oneness of covenant with us. So that was what we saw in that first one where Paul sees Jesus, and we, we know the whole thing. Jesus, uh, he's then temporarily bl- blinded until he goes then to this next section where he shows us what happens. The ne- yes?
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you go into, into Revelation, those letters to the churches, he walks in the midst of his church and he's there to... Well, it is. And what is the church? The church is not a physical building. It's human beings, right? So th- this actually then better, it gets it t- takes you then to the next step. And that is, ex- but you're exactly right. He's, he is, ag- he is, was aggressively going after the church, but he's going after the church through the individuals. The first one, martyr was who? Stephen, whom Paul sat there and gave a hearty approval to his killing. Yeah. Uh, they don't take us there in the lesson, but the church is his body. Yes. Ephesians. That's exactly right. Then that now that one actually would go real well with what you're talking. About. Is that the one you guys went to? Was it? Is that? A, oh, you weren't in that same conversation. See that oneness of mind again. That's so cool. <laughs> Ephesians five. That's right. Okay, so that's that. The first paragraph then is Paul sees the Lord. He she we went in and looked at, at the cross references to see why Jesus says if you're. Why are you persecuting me when he speaks to Paul? Then our next paragraph is 10 to 22. What do we see going on in that section? That will work because you got that so after the ver- in the, at the beginning of seventeen. So Ananias departed. It's like a conclusion thing. Um, that could work, okay. But d- just in general, what's going on there? What happens to Paul? There you go. That's in really, in essence, that's exactly what's going on. But he but he does more than just commissioning him into service. He actually. Uh, is present to endow him with what? To what? To to be a witness to his receiving of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Um, in which verse are you in? Oh, there it is, verse 15. And you'll bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons, for I will show him how much. What I think was cool was the, the contrast you see. <clears throat> There's two visions that are spoken of in this section, Right? The first vision is to who? Oh, well, there's that one. But I'm in this section, verses 10 down. Ananias. Ananias has a vision, right? And then who else has the vision? Saul himself. So two different men are having visions. Saul has not yet received the Holy Spirit, right? Ananias is saying, I gave him a vision about Paul, and then he actually goes on and explains that part that you just brought up, Margaret, telling me that this is, let me tell you, Ananias, this is what I'm going to do with this man. So he gives him, um, what is the right way to say this? What do you think Ananias's thoughts would have been if he had insight about who Paul was, about going to him? Yes. Yes, this would be like, you've got to be kidding. Are you sure? Don't you understand? This is the man who's persecuting the church and putting to death people, right? And so God gives him something supernatural. Again, I think in the book of Acts, the great thing is, is there are so many sign gifts, opportunities for us to witness 
God's working of signs. Do, do you think that we still have God working in that way today? Yes. Yeah. It's really sad, though, that we don't have more of it. It'd be, like, it'd be nice to see more of it. Uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> the signs are given specifically to give affirmation, right? That God is in it, that there's a confirmation that a person has been therefore given the boldness that they need. Or that they are given the belief that they need. They're given a confirmation of information so that they can put their full trust and faith in something. Often these signs, which we're going to see especially later with Peter where he does too, the result of that is what? What happens to the people who witness those things that he does? They, get, they come into faith. They believe, right? So they're able to put their full faith and confidence in God. So in this first section here, we see Ananias, who is in the faith, however, and he needs to go do something very difficult. Go face-to-face with a man who had been persecuting and putting to death and had the authority and the paperwork with him to do so. I mean, really, think about it. That's pretty scary. He's carrying your arrest warrant in his hand, and you're going to go and say, here I am, <laughs> Right? I know it. Isn't that true? I am so true. But you know what's interesting? I do believe this. I think that, that you know, sometimes people have, have dreams and they're very vivid and, you're like, and you do question. I'm not sure. I think it was the Lord. I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. When you have this kind of a vision and the Lord is directing you in this way with something word to, to your, from his mouth to your heart to, to infer, assure that you do it, you know it. I think that there is such a... a ominous experience of being in the presence of God that there is trembling and fear in your heart, the kind of trembling and fear of reverential fear. I don't mean I'm afraid of God, but I mean a reverential kind of a thing that really stays with you is profound. And, I, and so I don't think that actually if you truly have a vision from God that you would ever question, is that a vision from God? You would know it was a vision from God. So in this case, Ananias has this vision and he tells him about Paul. What I think is funny is at the same time he's giving Paul visions so, uh, so that he'll know about Ananias. <laughs> it's like he's talking on both sides and making sure the two connect, right? <laughs> I love that. Like That's so cool. Okay, so in this then, what is the ultimate result for Paul's life? What are we going to title this section here? What happens to Paul next? <clears throat> He comes into faith. And first thing he happens is these scales come from his eyes, right? And he regains his sight. So he regains his sight. And what does he receive? The Holy Spirit. I think those are two really important. Paul regains sight and receives the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now. One of the things that I thought was really cool in the homework that we did this week was on uh, day three, page 106. I want to do this with you real quick because it's kind of a contrast to what, or a comparison with what we did last week, with looking for the result in the lives of people, of of what happens with them. We looked, so this is going to be page 106, 107. She asks you, she says, in Acts 2, we will see Paul again telling the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. And we don't want to preempt this by taking you there now. However, there are insights to be gained about his life before 
and after his conversion. Did you notice the contrast there? The before and after? So that's what we want to look at right now. What do we see about the before and the after with Paul from these references? So what do we see in Philippians 3 and 4 in the before? Oh, boy, was there. Before salvation, what was his confidence in? His own, and not only his achievements, but even, even I think more base than that. He was proud about what? His heritage, which he had nothing to do with. I mean, listen, you are born into whatever family you're born in. I am, you know, I'm, I was born a Dalvey. That was my maiden name. So I'm, I was born that. I, don't, I was born with blonde hair. You know, you don't get to pick those things. So he's taking credit for being born blonde and a Dalvey. Like, okay, like, that's strange. But he's saying, but of course I understand the Hebrews have a, have a sense of pride in it, the the what God has endowed them with and with their responsibilities. But still, on a base level, his taking pride in the fact that he's a Hebrew <laughs> is pretty weird. <laughs> but it, and it just shows you, the, again, as you, someone mentioned earlier, the, pr- the pride and the arrogance of this man before his conversion. Before his salvation, he was co- his confidence was in two things. The flesh, which is what James came up with, the things that he has done, and, and, and in his Jewish heritage. So let's put that up here. So before, and would you say you know people like that? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> before his confidence was in the flesh, and his Jewish heritage. So we're going to look at that. That's going to be in Philippians 3, 4 to 7 is our reference on this. Okay. Now the contrast to that is then what happens later on when you keep moving. What did he say about that later in that Philippians reference? I count it all loss for what sake? For the sake of, for the sake of knowing Christ. It's all loss. It, it means nothing in, the, in comparison to it. I think that's, would you call that a huge transformation? Have you ever known people that went from being really, really prideful and came into faith and then became these very humble people? How many other people have you seen in Scripture that have taken a real switch in their, um, in their arrogance or their attitudes in Scripture? Peter is, is good. <laughs> Oh, wow. Nebuchadnezzar's a huge turnaround guy, huh? Um, what did they used to call John, too? And his was, he was the son of thunder, right? Also, uh, uh, the son, but uh, what about the apostle John, who is now the, the one who is loved, right? So, I mean, these people all had huge transformations. And so my point, I think, in this is that before his salvation, this is what he put his faith and confidence in. It's an arrogance. And now his faith and confidence, he says he counts all those things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Okay, so he has been, I'm going to put on here, he has been humbled. 
Um, is there any other thing that you see in this besides humility, having come to a place of being humbled? When he, when he makes this statement about that he counts those things as loss, do you see anything else in there? Any other attribute that it seems to be a quality that's of goodness? What about gratefulness? Do you see gratefulness in there? I saw it right away. I thought, wow, he went from being really arrogant and, and self-sufficient, sort of, to this very humble man who was very grateful to God for what he had done. Given what he had been doing, you could see that. I mean, it's like, whoa, look where I was headed. Yes. You know, I was headed straight to, to hell, basically. Mm-hmm. But he didn't think so, did he? Yeah. When he was still in that rage of hatred and evil, he was not thinking he was on his way to hell. He was a pious, self-righteous Jew, right? As soon as Jesus confronted him, I think he... Absolutely. Well, yes. Okay. This was a question that came to my mind. When, when I was looking at this, I went, we don't see anywhere in this conversion of, of Paul where we see the word repent used we don't see that he that he that it says he repented right but does it demonstrate to us that he did because by by definition to repent means to be going one way and to literally do a turnaround and go the other and would you say that that was what we see in paul there's a been a complete repentance in his life Oh, that is so cool. More and more, yes. And he, he did um, have to get baptized for the repentance of sins. And that's, he relates that as in, in his other uh, In the other test, yes. And we will, you know, we are going to be with Paul for a long time now once we hit this part two. So we'll glean more and more about him. The one thing that I wanted to be sure to say to you this week is I know there, would be, there were probably some questions that came up to you about sequentially the order of how things are unfolding for Paul in his life. And we're going to look at that in a second with that map that I gave to you. And that's going to help satisfy enough of your need to know momentarily. But you just got to keep in mind, we are studying the book of Acts for the history of the church. We're not studying a detailed uh, lifeline of Paul. Okay. However, it does not hurt to have a lifeline to understand where you are in the progression of things. And you know, why was he here and what happened there? And was, you know, what we do find out in this particular chapter here is that there's a gap of time that some other events took place before the next thing that's stated for us about the church. Why do you think that is? Why did they jump and leave out a whole gap of information about Paul? Because Paul's not the subject matter of this, of this reference of this book. This book's point is to teach you about the birthing of the church. And, and how God worked through uh, to establish his church to be that which he wanted, wants it to be. I love the fact that as we are moving through this, we're able to stop and say, okay, so what is God teaching me about church life through what he's showing me here with each of these events that we've looked at? And if we're able to do that, I think it will help us to better both appreciate our churches, 
but, uh, and what the purpose and function of them is, but also to be less critical maybe in a lot of ways about things that are happening in our churches because those same things happened right away in the early church. <laughs> the same kind of bickerings, the same kind of struggles, the same kind of persecutions, the same kind of false people that show up and say they're saved but then they're not. All those things are going to happen in a church that you're in today. And so God is laying this down for us as, as a document. What are we learning today then about Paul in as far as relationship to church so far? Yeah, he's been hostile. So what does that tell you about people you know who are hostile? God can do it. Nothing is impossible with God. If they will do what? Submit their heart humbly to all of God's teachings. If they will come in that kind of humility and gratefulness to him, they have to do that. If they won't do that, if all they do is get wet and come in, they're going to stir up trouble while they're in here. And there are some that will do that. And we need to be aware of that. I think that's what we learned last week. There There can be those people among you who say they have believed but are not believers. Paul, on the other hand now, is a great contrast that we are seeing a truly transformed life, right? Certainly, it's more spectacular than my life of transformation was because I had grown up in the church and was kind of vanilla. (laughs) I didn't do anything extraordinarily outside of the lines of social norms, right? I obeyed my mom and I was a good girl and all those things. I was truly more like the Pharisees, a whitewashed tomb. You know, still dead on the inside, but I looked good on the out in, those, in, my, in my youth. So when I had a transformation into my faith, it's a much more gentle switch. I mean, it wasn't quite as obvious to people that had made that transformation. And people who didn't really know me may not have even seen it necessarily because I was still being a good girl, <laughs> right? Not that I was perfect, not that I still am perfect, not that I ever was, but, you know, anyway. But I'm just saying, what a contrast between a Paul and, and someone like myself, or like some of the other apostles who came in, you know. Paul, however, would have considered himself to be very pious and very straight. But what was he against the church? He was really a, a, a fervent persecutor against the church. What a turnaround. That is true repentance. So we're getting to see a demonstration of what real repentance looks like, of a person's life who's turned around and transformed, how a person can go from doing one thing to turning around and doing the absolute opposite, and what a comfort that is to us to know that. Because there's nobody that's not reachable. God can reach them. And hopefully he reaches a lot of them through us, right? All right. Yes, he did think that. Yes, he was. Yes. And up until the cross, he was the real thing. But once he heard the gospel message and rejected it and then began to persecute it, then he was no longer that pious man in the eyes of God, right? But he thought he was. That's exactly right. And I can tell you that I thought I was. I grew up in a Christian home, and I had walked an aisle at the age of nine and was baptized, and so I always thought I was saved because I got wet, right? And, so, and because I followed all the basic rules. I mean, these are great truths for us to 
really evaluate for not only for us personally, but even as we're considering particularly our immediate family, as we watch our young children, our grandchildren, and so forth, to not fall victim to a false thinking that you're saved when you're not. And, and you don't ever want to... All of this, I can tell you this, that moment at age nine when I walked the aisle and I got baptized, that was a, a um, building block in my life to take me on forward into faith. So I don't, I don't re- necessarily regret doing that. But I do think the danger is that for some, if there was not a true transformation in their life, and there wasn't for me at that age, but... Um, if there if there's not and they get the baptism they think that's it and that, that that's all there is to it and that all you have to do is say yes I believe on Jesus and get wet and you're in like Flynn if you believe that then you're in trouble because that person then can remain in their in their darkness in their unsaved position as Paul was doing and going all the, in the absolute opposite direction of where they needed to be right. But it was a true and genuine encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus with Paul. His was a very sensational thing. But I'm telling you, God can still do that today. And he does sensational things in our lives all the time. Sometimes it's, it, is still, it is obviously still through the common people in our world. But often it's like, that should have never happened. I wasn't supposed to be there. They weren't supposed to be there. We all came together. All these things happened. And there they were. And then I got to hear the gospel. And then I said yes to the Lord. And here I am. And, and for them, that is an absolute miracle. And it is a miracle. Every birth, spiritual birth is a miracle of God. Um, but Paul's was quite, quite profound. What I find interesting is how it follows right on after Simon. What a contrast it shows us between the two kinds of faith. I really like the fact that God left him three days. Yes. Blind. And you know, he, you know how you know, they, they memorize so much scripture. And Paul was so intelligent. He knew all the scriptures. And he met Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he heard him. And he knows that. Don't you know those three days he's going through all this stuff that he remembers? Oh, I, I, and praying, praying about that. Exactly. So was, what's cool? What's, he was ready when Ananias came. Yes. And another thing, I looked up Ananias. Okay. And you know, we had Sephora and Ananias. Yes. And then we had the high priest Ananias. Mm-hmm. And then we have this Ananias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we're, we're also going to have Peter and Peter and Peter <laughs> coming up. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. And, well, what it shows you is, you know, n- names like David and John are still real popular, and a lot of people have them. And so that's where the confusion can sometimes be in Scripture. You have to be careful that you don't make an assumption that when it says Peter or when it says John or it says Ananias, you have to re- look to see who who is it actually speaking of. Okay. Yes, it's exactly what he did. And what a beautiful picture of that. It's a figurative thing for him. That, be, that is so perfect with the scripture that talks about that, that he came to, to uh, give sight to the blind. And I think it's interesting that he blinded him first and then gave him sight. <laughs> you know? That is really good. Okay, we also looked in Galatians 1. And I only want to look at two verses 13 and 24, and I want to see the difference that we see there. Again, we've already talked about it. Um, Before, what did he do? Yeah. He tried to destroy this church.
And then later, what did he do? When you hit down to uh, 24, what did the churches see in him? Yes, the churches were glorifying God because of him. I think that's pretty cool. Saying, thank you, Lord, for Paul. Thank you that he's got this great ministry. Thank you that he's out there doing the things. And thank you that you transformed him so he quit persecuting us. (laughs) I'm sure that was part of the prayer. (laughs) They were glorifying God because of him. So I'm showing you again, this is the transformed life. This is what we want to see in people, the transformed life. Okay, so that's the title of this. So there's that one. And then um, there's one more we're going to look at real quick, and then we'll move out of here and, and get the rest of this finished. Um, it's um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 10. I want to look in verse 2 one more time because I want to show you what he says about himself in, in contrast to this as the result of his believing. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, what does he say there about people who, have, who are believing? Okay, so what he's saying then is if the word that was preached is believed, right? And you're saved. That's how you're saved, by believing it, right? But then it has a caveat to it. Unless what? Unless you believed in vain. So that's telling you that there's a possibility that people can say they believed, but that their belief was in vain. That's how we get our, our wolves among the sheep sometimes. It's how we sometimes get people sitting in the punics who are nothing but troublemakers and cause trouble in the churches all the time, right? But the result of God in Paul was what? He says it down, if you drop all the way to, ooh, I don't know what verse it was. Can somebody help me where he talks about it not being in vain in him? Um, Hold on. Uh, 10, verse 10. Go down to verse 10. What happened with him? Mm-hmm. And then how did he prove that it was not in vain? He says, but, instead of, since it was not in vain, instead what? He worked harder than any of them. Yeah, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So I think this is really cool because he's saying, he's saying you can, you can be, that if you believe the word that's been preached, that's how you're saved, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, but me... It was not in vain. It did not prove to be vain in me, but I labored all the more. So he's saying there was a result in his life because of his true belief that he then got to work for God, right? That he did not believe in vain in a way which left him uh, in the same state he was in, basically. Uh, Maybe even as Hebrews talks about in chapter 3, where people were needing to come to those Hebrews and say, look, press into your new faith. Don't keep going back to the old things, right? Did Paul ever go back to the old traditions of the Jewish system? No. He pressed into his faith. And he's saying, I, my, my belief did not prove in vain. My faith resulted in my working for God. Isn't that cool? I love that. What a contrast that is. That's the before and the after. This is the transformed life of Paul. So uh, the word preached... 
Let me get this up here. If the word preached is believed, you are saved. That's a truth statement. Um, Unless you believed in vain. I think of those references in James. Somebody opened James 1.22. Somebody else look at John 15.8. And someone else do 1 John 2, 4, and 6. I want to look at those three verses real quick in relationship to this. James 1.22. Who has that one? Okay, James has that. John 15.8 and 16. 8 and 16, Martha. And 1 John 2, 4 to 6. Uh, Celeste, thank you. Okay, if you guys will hold on to that for just a second. Okay. I think it's interesting, too, the way it says that, that he labored even more than all of them, and then he gave God glory for it all. He didn't, he didn't think that that was something he was touting, right? That it wasn't, he doesn't, he's not saying, I worked so hard, look at me. Instead, what he's actually saying is, I worked really hard because my true faith was not a vain faith. Therefore, I worked all the more for the Lord, and I'm giving God full glory for that. It's by his glory, it's by his work in me that I did those works. Okay. That's right. He was a zealous dude. <laughs> he really was. It's, it's, I always think of Peter, too, who is always open mouth and her foot, and he was that way all the way through almost. Um, but I just, I think that, you know, our personalities are our personalities, and God will use them. And don't you know he needs those zealous people who sometimes rub the rest of you all wrong, but because you're like, please back off, you know, but, but you need the zealous people to motivate people, right? So, um, who was doing, James, you were doing, James 122. 122, okay. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Okay, do you, who delude themselves. So be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. There was another passage I remember about it's like those who look is it the same one where those who look into a mirror and then they walk away and they forget what they saw oh, okay read it for us if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he has looked at himself and gone away he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was yeah so you can't there cannot be no result is what he's saying in this verse. And James is saying that faith without works is dead. If it's true faith, you will see works, okay? It's not saying that you work to get saved. That's the horse, that's the wrong way. You want the horse before the cart. You come into faith and then you will do works. But if you don't see works, then what is that an, an indicator of? You're not saved. Something is right. And it's not to say that works save you, right? No. 
No, but you, but you have to have some kind of evidence in your life. That's exactly what Paul is saying again here. If the word preached is believed, then you are saved unless you believed in vain. But the grace of God toward me did not prove vain. He, and then he says, I labored even more than all of them. And then he also gave God glory for the work that he did. All right. Oh, this one is 1 Corinthians 15, and this is on day three homework, page 106-107. Okay, so this one is, I'll put it right in here, 1 Corinthians um, 15, and it, you all looked at verses 1 to 10. So this one, this part was verse 10, and this part up here, I think, was it verse 2? Yeah, 2. Okay, so that's verse 2 and 10 that I'm showing the contrast in. I know. I don't know where to put. I don't know where to put me. I'm sorry. I'm going to stand outside. I'm going to fall over that corner just like Wes did and break my neck. And he, I told him, I said I wouldn't be as graceful as he is. I'll fall on my face and break something. Um, he, he was kind of like a Dick Van Dyke. You should have seen him up again. Oh God. Wow. I remember the Dick Van Dyke shows where he used to do those falling stunts. Do you remember those? And he bounced back up. That's what Wes did. I was like, I'm impressed. Okay. Okay. Paragraph, uh, paragraph themes. In one and I, Paul sees Jesus. Uh, and what we see there is how Jesus shows to us in those, that conversation then that Jesus is in his children. And if the world comes against you, as Paul was coming against his, ch- his church members, the, those who were a part of the church at that time, then they were actually coming against Jesus himself. He took it as a personal affront, okay, a personal attack. And in 10 to 22, we see Paul regains his sight and he receives the Holy Spirit. And then we see in here, through the cross-references, this real transformed life that he, get, he had. He became very grateful and very humble. Uh, and this part here, what I saw in this was it was apparent to the church. Others could see it. And that's where, like Jesus says, you know a tree by its fruit. I should be able to look at your life. Um, the old poem that says if you, if you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would you be convicted? Would people come through your life, come through your activities, come through your personal effects in your home, through all your affiliations, and would you be convicted? Right? I'm dead. <laughs> I'm so in jail for life. Okay. Um, okay, now let's look at the next segment, which is 23 to 25. Ooh, we are getting close here. So we may have to just verbalize some of this. What do we see in 23 to 25 about Paul there? Yeah, there's a plot. And and then because of the Paul, what does Paul Paul have to do? Uh Uh-huh, so he escapes. He escapes Damascus death threats. Okay, so then we can go into Galatians on this, and we can say, okay, after his conversion, and, th- and I'm doing a clock on this. What do I'm, on this case, here we looked at the transformed life. Now we're looking at some sequential things that we're seeing about 
Paul's life. Here we're looking on a timeline of this, and you see that in, um, and I'm not going to write these down because I, I'm, we're short on time, but you just tell me what you saw in there. In Galatians 1, 13 to 24, what happened after his conversion? Start down in about verse 18. Or, well, you could start in 12, actually, but I guess. Okay, he went away to Arabia. And what he didn't do was do what, what it almost looks like if you go into the next segment in, in 26, it looks like he goes straight to where? To Jerusalem. But he doesn't, right? So this insight is really valuable to us because what you can say then is right there uh, between verse 25 and 26, there's a gap of time that's not, that's not given information to us about. Why? It doesn't have anything to do with the church. This is a historical record of the birthing of the church. We are not doing a timeline of Paul's life. So that's why that information is not there. It would take forever if they put all that in there. But you can know there is some information in here. So we know that Paul went away, that he was gone. um, uh, It says that he did not go to Jerusalem immediately to those who were apostles before him. Now, is there any kind of a subtle um, inference in there about, about how that sets him apart in a significant way? If he, had ju- if he had gotten saved on the road to Damascus and immediately went back to Jerusalem, as it looks like here, and sat underneath the tutelage of the apostles that had been saved before him, then where would that, where would that place him in, as a subordinate to them, Right? Uh, as far as the 12 are concerned, are they subordinate to one another? Not really. They're on this equal plane, aren't they? Jesus commissioned all of them. He called all of them. They are his 12. They are the foundation. And although Peter seems to rise in one area, which has to do with this idea of, of um, uh, uh, loosing and binding things and being present to give a confirmation of things that were taking place to identify this is the birthing of the church in these places, other than that, they're on e- they are on an equal plane. And that, that, that particular work that Christ gave to him did not elevate him above his brethren. So Paul does not get, therefore, put in subordination to, his bro- to the other apostles in this. And he actually later calls himself an apostle that has been abnormally born, right? So he says he was not taught. He did not go there. But how was he taught in verse 12 and 18? Yes, he was taught directly by Jesus. Now, we don't get the insight on all that. All we know is that it happened. So we know there was a period of time between those verses, 25 and 26, that he leaves Damascus because they left him, uh, let him out by a basket, it looks like. Unless there's other, other things in there, too, that I don't know about. There may be some other things that happen. But what we know from what we're looking at here is he's, he leaves Damascus after having... Um, had a period of time, though, where he has been actually preaching the gospel because it talks about him having disciples, right? That his disciples, yeah, yeah. He had had death threats, and his disciples then helped him escape. So if he has disciples, he's got followers that he's led into faith. He's been there for at least a period of time. But what we see then here is that he was taught directly by Jesus for a period of time. He doesn't go up to Jerusalem immediately. He goes away to Arabia. Then what happens in verse 17? After he's in Arabia, what happens? Well, first he goes back to Damascus. It does this, and he returned once more to Damascus. Now, some people in the commentaries that we looked at say that those 
few verses there where he gets in trouble and gets let out by a basket is after he comes back to Damascus, those things happen. I don't know which is which because we're not doing a study on that. But I did give you this timeline here. One thing Celeste brought up to me the other night when we were chatting about this was, she said, well, I thought Paul was trained for like 11 years before he starts preaching, right? Well, in his official capacity for ministry, it was an 11-year time if you look on this. He, his salvation, according to this timeline, is about 35 A.D., correct? His first missionary journey on this timeline is when? 46 to 48, it says, right? So it's, yeah, do you see it? 46 to 48. So that's when the first missionary journey is. And so his, in, a, in an official capacity as a missionary, it's about an 11-year period of time where Paul has had where and fully the, the understanding of it is a mystery. It's not even, I don't think we have record of it. Unless there's extra, does anybody, do you know, Craig, if there's other resources we can go to to find where Paul, I don't think so. I don't think there is because I've not found anything in the readings that I've done. Do you know? Because you do so much research, Lisa. No, you don't know either. Okay. So we don't know where he got his training or, or whatever, but we do know this. There, he does practice preaching before he takes in the official capacity as a missionary. Okay? So I think that's kind of insightful just to see that there's a break of time in here. Some other events are going on. He is witnessing. He's building some disciples who follow him. They seem to be very protective of him. And at this point, they help him then escape to Tarsus when he goes off, right, eventually. Maybe, but they wouldn't. Unless they came into faith, unless they came into faith, they wouldn't be helping him here. Yeah, that's true. But, if, you know, they saw the light, too. They didn't hear, necessarily hear what was going on. Right. It, it, it's supposition. Yeah, you're just throwing it out there. That's another thing to look at. Yeah, but who were these disciples, right? Well, the conclusion is what we know is he obviously was in faith long enough and have, had been... It said, what did he do when he got, when he, when his, the Holy Spirit fell upon him? What, was it, what does it say? Is he, he immediately did what? He immediately started preaching at the synagogues. Yeah, he immediately began preaching in the synagogues. So right away he went out and began witnessing of what he did know, right? Even before he was fully trained, he taught what he did know. There's a lesson in that for us, right? You don't have to wait till you're fully trained to teach. You just teach what you know. You don't teach what you don't know, obviously, but you teach what you do know. And he knew a lot anyway because he was a Pharisee, so he had some some things. One of the one of the other places in here though is talks about a three year time span. Is that in this one uh, where it says that the three that was in um, in Acts, wasn't it? That says in three years. Yes. Oh, is that Galatians? Oh, okay. Okay, and so then three, so three days later, or three years later, he went up. So apparently, wherever he was for those three years in Arabia, then I believe that's when the Lord appeared to him and actually gave him his training one-on-one. If that's true, 
If it's true, and I'm not saying positively I know that, but if he spent three years in training in Arabia after his, pretty much immediately after his conversion, then in equivalence, just as the disciples were trained by Jesus for three years, Paul was then what? Discipled by Jesus for three years. Isn't that kind of cool? And again, that, that helps to elevate him on that equal plane than where he says he's an apostle that was abnormally born, yet the Lord taught him personally. He wasn't taught by the apostles. And then he goes on to explain, I didn't even, even meet any of them at first. They didn't know, and the churches didn't even know me by sight at first. He's just validating that he got his training from Jesus Christ himself. For those first years of his spiritual birth. Yeah, he met Peter after the That's right. After the three years, he met Peter. And he was there for how long? Days. Fifteen days. Right. And he said the only other person he saw was James, the Lord's brother. Who, uh, and then, um, who is not the apostle. It's his brother. So he didn't meet any of the other apostles except for Peter. Then he goes on. And then later, somehow, he begins to start connecting with him. We're going to be able to see that as we move forward in Acts. Yes? Back when the Lord is talking to Ananias, uh, in verse 16, the Lord says, For I will show him how much you must suffer for my name's sake. That's right. So that could be what the Lord is showing him in Arabia. Maybe that too, but we know that he trained him in the gospel message. He was trained to understand, to convert his knowledge of Judaism into this new fulfillment in Jesus Christ, how Jesus fulfills all the laws and the prophets. Just as he did when Jesus walked along the road to um, Emmaus, and he spoke to the disciples, and he said, do you not know from the law and the prophet? And And he taught them all these things. I am certain that is exactly what Jesus did with Paul when he was away for those, those, that period of time in Arabia. Um, but I did want to show you that there is 11 years, Celeste, because you and I talked about it. There is about 11 years before he goes on his first official missionary journey. But, you know, three years is only equated here in Acts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know, so, I know Lois is really cutting me off here. So let's just do one more thing here. I know, and I appreciate you, Lois. High five. Okay, so we see then what we've talked about, and we didn't, it'll be on my list, but we see after his conversion, all these things happen. The last thing is 26 to 30, and there what we see is that Paul returns to Jerusalem preaching, and he faces more death threats, right? Let's put that on here. Paul returns to Jerusalem. And he faces more death threat. Then we go in chapter, and verse 31, I think, really concludes all the way down to 43 if you really want it to. So that's what we're going to do because we know we're out of time. What do you see in verse 31 then? It happens after that. The church continued to do what? Yeah. Continue to increase. So, and then it shows you after that Peter, what Peter does. Oop, spelled that wrong. Peter, uh, he heals uh, Ananias, or Anias is his name, I guess, at Lydda. And then people saw and turned to the Lord. Because once they saw what he had done, then they turned to the Lord. And then in 36 to 43, Peter then again 
he raises Tabitha at, at the city of Joppa. It became known to all, and many believed, right? So what is your chapter theme for the book, for the chapter 9? There is lots of stuff in there, but if you break it down, there's really two points. Paul's conversion and the church grows. That's, or continues to grow, yeah. There you, oh, I love that. Paul brings forth fruit. Meat for repentance. Meat for. I'm sorry, that's King James. Oh, okay, meat for. In other words, that that proves his repentance was genuine, right? Awesome, that's good. Good stuff. All right, guys. I will send you the chart. You'll get the full information. But I hope that that was helpful to spend that time on baptism.